My name is Marie Hinyoung Nguyen. I am a TV and film writer, and the show that I worked on most recently is called Beef. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all of Congratulations on the success of that show, and thanks for yeah. coming on the podcast, Marie. Of course. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Wonderful. And we met um, at Bao Nguyen's uh, birthday party last December, right? Yes. Yeah, very briefly. Yeah, very brief. He has many friends. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So where did you grow up? Um, so I actually, I was born in Vietnam, um, in Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City. And I grew up there until I was five. And then my family immigrated here um, uh, to Northern California when I was younger. And as you were growing up, uh, did you have any remem- memory of wanting to be a writer at all? Yes. Um, I think ever since I was young, um, I think around, I always wanted to be an artist. I started out drawing, I think when I was like four or five. And then when I got into school, um, I was in ESL probably until the fourth grade. And I think once I became more fluent and was able to read more books and watch films, like I knew I always wanted to be a writer in some form. I didn't know that it would be film and TV um, when I was younger, but I definitely wanted to write. And what did your parents think of that? Um, they were always, I think, confused, but somewhat supportive. Like, I think they knew they couldn't stop me. Um, I think like very, you know, traditional Asian parents, they were definitely looking at my other family members. You know, a lot of them are doctors or lawyers and they're like, what's wrong with you? But eventually, you know, they, um, and now they're very supportive. I think, especially as immigrant parents, they didn't really understand this career path. Um, I didn't either, to be honest. I didn't really know about it. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And I would love to get into that, not knowing about it, because it's like, when we don't know about it, how do we get the rest of the community, the youth of the community to get into it, right? Because yeah. it's like a career path. Because can you imagine like all the Vietnamese parents going, you know, my dream is for you to become a TV writer one day, or right? I know. And there's like this career path and there's like this ABC steps that we can take it but i think that's like kind of my job nowadays is to like illuminate what that process is or like that mode of thinking from an early age like a lot of people are like okay be a doctor be a doctor be a lawyer which are great professions but at the same time now we're at the new we're a new place in our our culture that we need to get more people like the marie's of the world to to be writing yeah um i totally agree with you i think i was you know, because I myself was an immigrant coming here. And I think growing up, it just, I knew, like, I knew I wanted so much to be a writer. Um, I loved books. I loved film. I loved probably more film than television, because I was just kind of checking out, you know, watching whatever I could at the library. It's not that I I had taste or anything, but I just enjoyed watching stuff and storytelling. Um, And I knew that I really wanted it, but I certainly didn't know how to get there. And it took me, I think, um, it took a lot of my career and kind of a long journey to figure out a pathway to becoming a writer. I worked in our industry probably seven years or something before um, to get to this place where I could like fully transition to writing. Um, so I agree. And I so believe in like, you know, when I was working as a producer, like created internship programs and outreach and just like, not even education, but just sharing that that dream is possible. Um, and there are ways beyond just, of course, continuing to write, but there are ways to actually break in and make a living. Um, I think as, uh, I think a lot of Asian immigrants, I think have a lot of filial piety. And I think, you know, if you don't maybe come from a really secure financial upbringing, the ups and downs, you know, of a kind of freelance artistic job seem more insurmountable. But yeah, I would love to I, I think it's really important for me to share with people, like, if you really love this, I think there's a way to do it and have a life um, that you can be proud of and happy with, I think. And yeah. your community is very proud of you, too, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's what made beef special, just like the part of Vietnamese representation that was a small part of it. 
on yeah. the Ali Wong side. Yeah. Now, when uh, you're growing up and, you know, you leave Vietnam at five, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this was like, I mean, not fairly, re- I mean, you didn't have to go on a boat. Your family didn't have to, you know, you're probably on a, a special program like ODP or HO, uh, your family. So yeah. can you tell me a little bit about that, like departure when you, when you left Vietnam? Yeah. Um, so I'll go back a little bit. So like during the war, like my mother's side of the family, most of, they all escaped by boat. Um, my mom and her other sibling had tried and failed um, several times. And so they stayed behind in Vietnam. My father was in a re-education camp. They hadn't met each other, but he was in a re-education camp for a long time. Um, and so growing up in Vietnam, uh, you know, we... I guess in hindsight, we were lower middle class. I think compared to the U.S., we were like obviously very poor in a developing country. And then when we came here, um, I grew like probably um, when I was five, like we were constantly living on, you know, every year I felt like we would move to a different aunt and uncle's couch or something, um, living with my cousins and families, um, sharing a pullout bed for just many years. And then you know, getting an apartment. And then, um, yeah, so that I think like, I remember it really vividly, you know, I still remember Vietnam, like, probably as young as when I was like, two or three. And I think assimilating, not knowing the language, being so isolated as a kid, um, was really hard. I think it really shaped um, who I am as a person, how much I value friendships and whatnot. But also, I think in that loneliness, um, I was able to kind of hide in films and books. And I think maybe that was what, you know, a lot of the inspiration, I think, to pursue this path came from the joy and the solace I found in stories as a kid who didn't know English and had no friends. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's the most, uh, you know, the, the people who are isolated or sick in bed or, you know, away from the public or these mainstream, you know, kids who are playing sports and, you know, really into society. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of sometimes grow up to be kind of like these regular journeys and then you know the kids who are like isolated have this opportunity to really expand a little bit about themselves understand through reading a lot and i mean you hear this all the time right these artists who you know had that period of like five years or ten years of their early childhood to really get to form these thoughts in their mind yeah yeah I think it was such a formative time. And actually, you know, now that I'm a working writer, I talked to my parents and my mom was studying to be a doctor when she was in Vietnam. But I asked her, like, you know, I've learned that, like, actually her passion was she wanted to maybe be a singer, be an actress. My dad was always interested in writing, even though he was studying to be a priest. And I think they just not knowing English well, but they just never thought it was possible, you know. But I think in my family there, it seems like there is actually... Uh, a passion for the arts that I'm grateful for that they loved and I wish that they had had like I think I'm only here because I'm not saying it was easy for me but it was a lot easier than it was obviously for my parents and so I think yeah I'm very passionate about sharing with our community like what is possible and that if you do have a dream that is maybe you know out seemingly not in the norm um, that it's possible. So let's take it to like maybe around high school, college when you're Mm -hmm. this burning passion to write and you're watching a lot of movies. What point do you go? I got to step up the game and really find a way in. Yeah. So I have to say in high school, I had no idea and it was really naive because I was watching films and you know, I would, you like, I would see the credits, but I really had no understanding of what a director was what a like I didn't imagine what the process was I didn't even know to think about it in a way um and I had actually this English teacher who um was like um she had told me that she was a writer that she was a screenwriter and her whole family was in film and if I was interested you know it was a pathway maybe think about film school and so I applied and that's what sent me um, and I got into, I got like a scholarship to go to the school called Chapman, which had a film program. And so that kind of was what led me, um, yeah, down this path. So this was high school. Mm-hmm. A high school teacher said, you know, script writing might be something that you should look into. 
Yeah. Yeah. She was very encouraging. So at that point, I mean, I'm just really basic about this whole thing. Yeah. You have this idea of becoming a script writer. You watch a lot of movies. Then in order to apply to Chapman, though, did they have to see a writing sample or anything? Yeah, I had to write um, a short. I had to write, I think, a short story. It was very bad. I don't know why they let me in, but I got in. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I hadn't read scripts or anything. I mean, we had read plays in school, and I really thought I wanted to be a novelist. But um, back then, I think the entry point for writers of color, even into novel writing, it just was a lot. I think it's really different now. I've seen the industry, both in literature and film, and like the crossover of the two, really change in my time. Last ten years of working, um, I think when I was in high school and middle school, it was really different. It felt like every working creative writer was probably white, mostly male, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> True. That's changed a lot. I'm sure. Yeah, I think so. And the internet too, you know, has made a lot more possible. I feel like I was growing up right when that was, um, there was more access because of that. But yeah. So you get to Chapman and you major in screenwriting or uh, creative writing? Yeah, I did screenwriting in French. You know, there's a lot of irony there with the French. Um, but uh yeah, I did screenwriting. And you know what? I've never told anyone this, but I actually failed my screenwriting class. I got an F on my why? thesis. Never told my parents. Well, why did you get an F? Um, the reason I share this is because, so I was graduating early because of financial pressure, um, not for my parents, but just because I felt the burden of that. And I, I want to talk, I, I think it's important to share this because I think a lot of kids getting into you know the industry um, especially when you're starting out with these jobs, they pay so little. And so there's a barrier to entry that I think a lot of people, if you don't have, you know, financial support from your parents, it's really hard. And so I just want to share that it was really hard for me. And um, and it was possible. But like the reason I failed my thesis was because my last semester, I was just trying so hard to get a job. That was all I really cared about. It was like, I just need to get, I can't have a gap where I am not able to help my family or have no income. So it was between like writing a feature script or trying to land a job. And so I got the job and I started working at CAA. I was an intern and then I got hired there. But it was like that just took over my whole life. And my teacher was very kind. He gave me an extension, but I was still so overwhelmed. Like I wasn't able to um, finish my thesis. So he rightfully gave me an F um, and I'm a writer now. But that was like the kind of the bet I took, you know, Um that is so ironic to hear yeah, that. I know. I know. <gasps> yeah. And I feel like I'm one of, you know, of my class, like, I think one of the few, like, working screenwriters now, from what I can tell. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying everyone should fail their classes. Absolutely recommend you doing well in school. But, um, yeah, I felt like I was just back against a wall and I, I just had to make, I couldn't but, do both. <laughs> but there's a moral to the story for me is this. It shows how tenacious you are because in the face of failing a thesis, which is so important, it's vital to graduating, right? In, in the, in the face of that, you make a weighted decision to pursue the thing that's most important. And then everybody, you know, we all know how important it is to be at CAA, right? Yeah. It's everything, almost everything. I mean, cause that's when, you know, you can really learn and connect with the people that you're going to be, the cohort that you're going to be growing up with. Yeah. And um, to make that bet and to be that tenacious to say, you know what, I'm going to weigh this out. And, but I, was it that clear at the time or was it just like a gun pointed to your head and you just kind of had to like split decision, go, I have to go this way. I think it was more the latter. I was definitely panicked. I don't think I had a smooth strategic plan. It wasn't like, I will give up this grade in order to get a career. But I knew that I was like, the job was the priority. That much I knew. It wasn't like, I wasn't going to quit the job or not show up my internship in order to finish <laughs> a very bad feature script. Um, but it it was really stressful. I think the most important part was just like, um, if you're trying to break in and if you don't have a lot of financial resources, just give yourself grace because it is really hard and just know that you're competing with a lot of people who don't have, you know, those same issues. And if you have to make certain sacrifices, that's okay. I'm sure a more brilliant person could have gotten the A and the job. You know, I was not, I was kind of floundering, um, but it worked out. So I'm not. 
And yeah. how did you actually get to CAA? How did you get the internship? That was kind of weird. Um, I remember I was just looking for any job. I was just applying online. And I just remember finding an old application from many years ago from a UPenn website. Like I, because back then the CAA like didn't have, I remember their website was just CAA. Like there was no, there was no like job links. Like now it's really different. You can actually apply to the jobs there. It was much more exclusive. And I think getting, working at the agencies was much more like a game of like, how do you get in? Um, and I didn't really have any connections, but I had sent in that application, somehow got a phone interview and then they gave me, I got the internship. Um, and it's really funny because I got the internship and I had graduated. So of like they took some interns who were like maybe in their junior year, sophomore year. So not everyone was at the end of the internship was actually ready to take a job or wanted a job. But I I was, and I, I really wanted it. And I remember in my exit interview, they were like, you're too quiet. You're too shy. Like you're not ready for a job here. Um, maybe reapply in like a few years. And I really panicked because I was like, no, you don't understand. Like, I need this job. Um, and so, but that I left that interview and they're like, sorry, we can't hire you. And of course, you know, as an Asian woman, I, especially then the culture was very different, but being told that you're too quiet, too passive, et cetera, you know, there's stuff. Um, and I don't blame them, actually. I think their culture, I think they were looking for a certain type of person. I knew on the surface, I didn't fit. And so in our there was like a final lunch, like a goodbye lunch for the interns. And it had all the heads of departments, et cetera, there and the people who were hiring the heads of HR. And I just like, I think I blacked out because I was so stressed, but I just gave this speech that made everyone laugh. And after that speech, they were like, okay, we'll hire you. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's crazy. Wait, so what did this, yeah. wait, how, how were you given like the platform to give a speech and like to how many people or was it, was it no, it wasn't to everyone at CA. It was like come to the intern class and all like all like the, the agents who were kind of running the program and but the, the heads of HR who I knew were hiring. And it was like, oh, does anyone have something to say? Like any last words? Say goodbye. Say thanks. And how many people and, were in the room? I don't. My guess is like maybe 35 or something, you know, um, not like a massive amount, but still really scary, especially knowing that their yeah. critique of me was like, you can't, you don't speak. Um, and so I was like, I have one day left to speak. And so I spoke and then afterwards the HR lady was like, Oh, we want to hire you. And, um, I actually didn't have to even work in the mailroom. They bumped me up to floater. <laughs> so I didn't have to go through the first like step. Usually, you know, they place you back then it was more severe. They place you based on, um, how, uh, yeah. Like how ready they thought you were like kind of starting the mailroom was like base level training. You were floater. You were a little bit, you know, you got to skip that step. And so I got to be a floater. That was my first official job. I'm I'm uh, I'm trying to be very careful about causation correlation all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? But goddamn the 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 one thing that changes the courses of our lives. I mean this is pretty epic. It's a epic story because you know one degree to the to the left or to the right and you're at a different place in your life and career, right? Yeah. 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 It was very stressful. I still get stressed thinking about it, you know? And what, what did you say? Do you remember what you said at the speech? I mean, basically what you said? I think um, I vaguely remember. It was some version of like, I'm really grateful to be here. I really thought like, I'm really self-deprecating. And I feel like my sense of humor sometimes is not appropriate. But I was like, um, I remember saying that I thought that I would hate all of them a lot more than I did. And I'm really glad that you know, I'm surprised that like I ended up liking them so much. And I think that kind of was so against what they had expected of me. Maybe that was it. I have no idea. Maybe it was just the fact that I spoke okay. up at all. <laughs> but yeah, it was kind of insulting to them, I remember. And I was like, oh God, if this doesn't work, doesn't matter. I'm not getting the job. I wasn't going to get the job anyway. So who cares? Well, but yeah, it saved me. <laughs> and then you go from floater and then do you eventually get to a desk? Mm -hmm. I got on a desk. I started working for this really wonderful agent named Ben Kramer um, in the film finance department. The name has changed now, but it's basically independent film financing. Um, yeah, I started working there. Again, I went to completely nothing to do with writing. No, 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 no. And I knew that CA was not the right place for me. I, there was no part of me that was like, oh, I changed my mind. I want to be an agent. 
Um, I think if I were savvier back then and had understood like TV as a pathway, I think that would have been a more mm. clear traditional path. But I really loved film. And so but what, were there options open, though, that they were like, oh, here's the desk where you can, you know, pick up with the lit agent uh, in TV or, or film here? Or was it like this is what you're assigned to and you, you got to take it? It was more of the latter in my case. I think some people, and I, again, I think it's really different now. Um, I think a lot of people leaving college are just savvier and kind of know how to navigate. Yeah. I think back then it was kind of more obscure. Um, or, or maybe I was just an idiot and I just didn't know anything. But um, I got on this, it was like, I was floating on this desk and they're like, oh, we want to offer it to you. And I was like, well, it's in film, you know, like that's maybe good enough. Um, yeah, I didn't really think to be like, oh, I'm going to hold out for a different job um, yeah. or a different desk. And then all um, this time you're you're still writing at night? Yeah, yeah. But I have to be, again, I say this to the other people out there who are struggling and financially scared and stuff. Um, CA, an all-consuming job like that and like really time-consuming, really stressful, um, I I wasn't writing well. And I didn't really have the energy to write a lot after work like I wanted to. Um, but those early years in my 20s really felt like just like survival mode of just trying to get through. Um, and so I think if you are able to carve out time um, and it seems like that the culture there has gotten better with work balance or kind of maybe across in the industry across the board for assistance. Um, but, yeah, it was really hard. And so it took me I wasn't writing that much. And it took me a few years to get to a place where I was able to write more again. Yeah. And, and the desks that you were at weren't, you weren't reading. Um, you, there was no mandatory script reading, right? It wasn't mandatory. Um, I definitely got, you know, it, that was one of the helpful things in terms of access. Like you were able to get a lot of scripts or if you were tracking, you know, good scripts, even if your boss wasn't getting it, you could ask someone else to do it. Um, I did read scripts. A lot of them, I would say, were not that inspiring, um, but it was just good exposure. And to be honest, like it helped me. It taught me a lot about how our business works, how representation works. I don't I'm really grateful for that time because I think it has helped me as a writer and a producer to just navigate situations that if you're just coming in. Kind of fresh as a writer, you know, sometimes the the industry side of things can seem intimidating. And I feel lucky that I kind of had that education before. Yeah, it's um, the agency route is the education after the education mm-hmm. yes have have. Um, yeah. it's it's almost mandatory and yeah. obviously if you're in the elite forces like you know if you make an analogy to like the military you know you're you have your seal teams you know at the caa level and you know uta and yeah. uh, we morris and all these big agencies and you get to do a few years there and then you can really branch out and know what the hell is going on with logistics and how these things are put together. Not right. enough of us are in that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think CA, especially from what I know, maybe I think the other agencies too, I'm not like on top of this, but I think over the years I've seen diversity and inclusion be a really important, um, a bigger mission statement. I think when I was starting out, it felt less so maybe, you know, than now, um, Certainly the content, the things that were getting made, the conversations about diversity and representation now are just, I feel like, light years ahead of what I was experiencing like 10 years ago. Um, But yeah, there's not a lot. I think there's more transparency now. And I think there's more access if you want to seek it out. But yeah, there should be more. Um, And I'm I'm glad to see that the trends are changing. So can you walk me through from the time you are at CAA to becoming a staff writer on beef. Like what yeah. happens? Yeah, it was a lot. So I was working at CAA, indie film, learning a lot, great boss, um, but knew that I didn't want to be an agent. And so like the goal was just to get out as fast as I could. Um, and then I went to Sundance. After that, I worked for Carrie Putnam, the head of Sundance, another really great boss. Um and I thought being close, it, it wasn't even that intentional. I just really needed a job. Um, and I thought the nonprofit space was interesting. I thought being, you know, near artists, supporting artists. Um, and I really respected Sundance just as an organization. Um, and so that was a good education, I think. But where what I learned was like, I was really close to artists. But if I wanted my day job to be teaching me more, um, 
to do the thing that I wanted to do. Like I wanted to work for someone. I realized I had to go work for someone who was doing the job that I wanted to ultimately have. Um, Cause it felt like even though, you know, CA and Sundance are in our industry, it still wasn't creative per se. And so I felt like it's still my work life and my first, like my creative ambitions were really separate still. And I was like, I need to get a job that like at least better marries these two things. So I, um, started working with this filmmaker named Ian Demange. I started his assistant and then became kind of his executive producing partner as he started a company. And we worked on the film White Boy Rick together. Um, then we worked on the Lovecraft Country pilot. And so great. It, it, I learned so much in terms of how to produce, you know, an independent film, but at a scale, like, it, you know, an indie film for around like, you know, in the 30 million range, like that's even like more rare now. So I'm glad I got to see that. Lovecraft Country was a really big pilot. Um, and so I learned a lot. And during that time, um, I I like I felt much more creative. I felt much more inspired. I was writing plays. Um, I was writing a pilot. And that quickly got me into like programs like I got into the Blacklist Women in Film program. I got into a Sundance um theater intensive. I was like building kind of my credits just as like a writer, a voice or whatnot. And then um, the pandemic hit and I was like, I really need to take a chance on myself. And so I quit my job and I had given myself, I had a little bit of savings over like the years of uh, my measly salaries cobbled together. And I was like, I have like practically like a five month window to just focus on writing. And if, if I can't get a job as writer, I'll go your writer's assistant get some job you know um would not put my family in financial risk for all eternity as i you know if this dream wasn't going to work out so i quit in i think like my i ended my job in february and then by april i got my first job on beef um it was like instantly and then i staff i've been staffing i've been working back to back ever since um i sold a show the with A24 Amazon. I mean, it's been crazy. That's like the past two and a half years. It's been really nonstop. So I feel very blessed and very lucky. But yeah. And yeah. Before um, Lovecraft and White Boy Rick, mm -hmm. did your focus, was it landing on becoming a writer yet? Or were you still in the producing mode and you're like, oh, anything can go, I'm still learning mode? Um, I definitely wanted to focus more on writing. I also was really interested in directing, but I think that's a longer path and more financially um, risky. Yeah. Yeah. And it just takes more financial resources. You know, writing, I was like, I can do this. I love doing this. And it just felt like for me at the time, and again, you know, having to think somewhat practically about the financial part of this job, uh, writing felt like an easier pathway to all of it. But uh, during the pandemic and you quit your job and everything and you're like, I, I got to make this sw serious switch. Yeah. Uh, you just can't, you know, people just can't be like, okay, I want to, I want to switch and then go on to become a staff writer, like on a big show like Beef. How does that happen? I think it was luck. Um, I think too, like I got put up for that job. Um, I'm not sure. I, I, I was lucky that Sunny read my writing. Um, I think I had close relationships with people at A24 who I think helped recommend me. Um, so I think that helped cut through, you know, I'm sure you, Sunny had a massive pile of people to read. Um, and I remember in the meeting too, like I really connected with his vision for the story, but I think a large part of it, um, and I'm not embarrassed to say this, was I remember asking him if like, oh, is, Al, you know, Ali Wong's half Vietnamese. Are you going to bring that into the story? And he was like, oh yeah, like, because I think that's a big part of her identity. So yeah. I was like, I'm Vietnamese, hello. Um, I have no idea if that's why. I have no idea why he hired me. But um, uh, yeah, it was it was a it was a lot of luck. But I think I did, you know, all the years I had put in working on our business before, building relationships, um, getting experience as a producer and whatnot. I think that helped. I think if you are just saying that if you have no experience and want to just quit your job and just try to be a staff writer. I think it's I think it's totally possible. I think you can have an excellent sample, whether it's a script, you know, they'll read anything now, a script, a play, a novel, whatever it is, certainly possible. Um, but I actually think I had a really good foundation of support where that jump was less. 
I felt like I was ready to take that risk because I feel like my whole career is just kind of judging like I want this really risky thing but I can't sacrifice you know my family's security or whatnot so but at that point I was like this is if there's any time where this was the safest version of this crazy bet it would be this so yeah now I've always wanted to ask this uh question but um now I can ask it to somebody like you which is when you get on a show like this is there any time where you predict in your mind this is going to blow up like the people on this shit the, the people on this ship is like mothership level and this is like an like the next level people and this show is going to blow up and do really well do you have that feeling when you walk in that portal the first time or not really you're just all working hard and who knows where this is going i can't speak to the other writers um I personally, for me, from my perspective, I had no sense that this show would connect. It seems to have connected with so many people in a way. I would say when we were in the room, the ambition to create a really like powerful story about anger, about loneliness, isolation, all of that um, was there. You know, we wanted, I, Sunny had a, wanted, you know, to do a really bold but entertaining, but like, um affecting story you know and so i think he kept pushing us to uh dig for the best story we could and i think that you know creative freedom and ambition was there but i don't and you know you always hope that like you make something and at least one person who's not your parents will watch it but i i certainly had no sense and just the critical reception i was really excited by but didn't expect it um cuz you know like i felt like there are parts of the show that are risky that take both swings you know like I don't think we were ever going for um like the safest version of that story so I thought it would might be more polarizing so it's been really exciting that like <laughs> people have been so positive about it but damn the polarization within that storylines within the storyline is what makes it so it draws you in right because you hope yeah without that sort of without the polarization you just there's no way to connect to the and i think that's like in comedy or drama or whatever like everything that's pushing you to the it's like edging you to insanity is what sort of drives us in and turns us sort of alive to to, to the material yeah yeah um and i think that was the hope but certainly not the uh or at least i didn't have that confidence like that it was a hundred percent gonna land you know i felt like you never really know um and then once you're done with a work it's like it's its own thing it has its own life um and it's out there and it's cool to see like people responding to it yeah and and then the, the reason i preface my question with what i said about like i've always wanted to ask somebody because i mean in the vietnamese community we haven't you know i mean we've we've gotten a few wins but this is a big win um having you on as a writer a staff writer on the show and asking you to kind of gauge if you could feel the success of this project before it, you know, went live on Netflix, right? So yeah. it's like such a, a special thing uh, to witness. Yeah, I'm really, yeah, we feel really lucky. I mean, I would say like in terms of going into the project, I was really creatively excited by it. Not just Sunny, but Allie and Steven, you know, Netflix A24. Like there were a lot of elements that was like, oh, if if there's any chance a show will succeed, hopefully it's something like this, you know, because you have so much support and talent around it. Um, yeah. And, and was Ali and, and Steven in the rooms when you guys were writing and pitching and doing the work? No, they weren't. They We had meetings with them. Um, they would come in and out sometimes, but a lot of, I think, the creative conversations related to the story with them, like Sunny would have with them. Um, and he was really close to them. And I think they shared a lot of, you know, very personal stuff that made it into the show. Um, and in the room, it was mostly the writers uh, breaking story and then, yeah, writing. And how long uh, did it take to kind of like complete from A to Z uh, up until the time that they go into production? Or was it all happening simultaneously? No, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't simultaneous. I think, and I think this is quite normal for rooms now, but the room existed. We wrote, you know, the app, as many episodes as we could we didn't finish all of them but i think we broke we had broken them um and written a chunk of them 
and what, then what by broken so the audience will oh, understand what that means um that just means like we had kind of mapped out what the stories would be for even if the stories the episodes didn't have scripts we had kind of mapped out what we thought would happen in like episode eight episode nine episode ten um broken the story quote unquote i think just uh means like figuring out the story um i don't i can't remember now it's been like two years but i didn't know i don't remember if we had gotten through to like the outline stage like usually the process is you know as a room for the season you can go by episode but you're you break each episode you figure out as a room what's happening in the episode and then you typically write an outline for that episode and then you move into writing the script phase of that episode and then the script will go through various drafts the writer's draft producer draft etc as it gets notes and so when our room ended i think we had broken we had figured out the story for the season loosely um i forget how many we had a, the majority of the scripts in um and i'm not sure how many outlines we had in but the room ended and then um sunny continued the journey and did a lot of like did the rest of the writing and all of that and then he went to production and he did that wow so it's himself. just him to to polish up and get it ready for production yeah yeah and i i mean we don't have to get into this, but I think that in the old days, I think before a lot of the streamers disrupted the process, I think it was standard for writers in the room to stay with the show through production. Right. You know, writers would go cover their episodes, be on set, et cetera. The way beef was structured, which I think happens now with a lot of shows, is the room ends and the showrunner's kind of on their own. There might be a senior writer involved. I don't think there was for beef. Um so it just happened to be that sunny, you know, and he had a lot of, he had his directing producer, Jake, Tra like he had a lot of people supporting him, but in terms of the writing, it was sunny uh, after the room ended. Uh, it's a lot of heavy lifting. How many writers yeah. um, was uh, around in the room before? Uh, uh, one, let me say so with me. One, two, three, four, five, six. There was about eight. There were some people who were, consulting or part-time or they would um some people came in and out but i think the total in the room was around eight um maybe a little less in, depending on like what phase we were in so yeah. interesting all of the the back end and how the mechanics work uh, yeah shows yeah what does it mean to be vietnamese to you but i have to say i am not only am i so proud to be vietnamese but i think it is and you know my family is so important to me but i think it is a part of everything I do as an artist and every thought I have, every theme I'm drawn to, every value I have as a person is related to culturally what it means to be Vietnamese, um, historically what it's meant to be Vietnamese, like a people that I, I think such a beautiful, I mean, I'm so proud that it is my culture, but you know, we have such a history of, I think, violence and pain and oppression along with beautiful art and you know um and what our society was before colonialism etc and so i think all of that i'm constantly navigating and parsing through as an artist and i think the stories i'm drawn to um the themes that i care about i know that they are all directly tied to my experience as a Vietnamese woman in this world and coming from a Vietnamese family. That's beautiful. Um, have you, have you gone back to Vietnam? I have been back once and it was very emotional. What, what year? Um, 2000, I think 17 or 18. Okay. It's fairly recent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I saw like, kind of like the shack I grew up in and it was, it was crazy. Wait, what do you mean the shack you grew up in? It was just like a shitty little, it, it, like the whole street has changed now, but yeah, we were really, yeah, we were really poor when I was growing up and just seeing that. And and so that's, what's been so kind of crazy about this journey. Just, you know, seeing like the, um, like the rundown house that I grew up in, um, sleeping on the, you know, dirt floors, whatever. And then, and to go from like, that's, I think what's been so it's something that's been hard for me to reconcile, but I think um, I'm grateful for it. It's just like having that, having started there, you know, and then now going to like showing up at premieres or Oscar yeah. parties, being around like yeah. 
the upper echelons in a way. It's yeah. just like it's like an extreme like cultural whiplash. It's a mind fuck um, sometimes. Yeah. That work. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's yeah. and and I think that's a whole part of it too. I think that's also what drives me a lot as a creative. I'm um, yeah. just trying to process this giant gap that I've yeah. Or the gap between like all these different parts of my identity. But I think being Vietnamese is like um so essential and i make a point to always like when i introduce myself you know i identify first as vietnamese i know that i'm technically american but I, in my mind i'm like i am vietnamese and i think it was really important to have when i was you know had joined the wga they were like how do you want to be credited and it was really important to have my my like my true name in my name and my credits even though Sonny was like, <laughs> um, on my episode with my other co-writer, he's like, you guys have the longest names and we can barely fit it on the title card. And I was like, I'm sorry, but it's really important to me. Um, yeah, make the font smaller. I don't know what to tell you. Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's beautiful. Because when I run across that decision, it's a clear decision to me when I see yeah. it on screen. Yeah. It's just clear. It's very clear to me. It's like somebody made a decision. To, to spell it out. And it's not easy to make that decision in Hollywood, especially in the earlier years. And now it's not easy, but it's still something that you can still fight for. And you were like, no, I want that. And it's so it's a very intentional thing that I see when I see it on screen. I love it. Yeah. Even when I was in college, you know, my stupid little short films, it was like, this is the name that I need to yeah. put out into the world. And now people give me shit. I'm like, it's the same syllables is Phoebe Waller-Bridge, so you can leave me alone. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, I want to go back to that whole shack idea. Like, mm -hmm. uh, the more I do these interviews, the more, again, correlation, causation, I don't want to get into that, but I really do feel like um, at the root of a lot of our drive, um, we tap into this uh, place and it's, it's, there's many levels to it. Um, you spelled it out as a shack, you know, I spell it out as, you know, when I was in the hood, you know, I grew up in South LA mm -hmm. or mid city, we are kind of, um, gifted with that, with that shack or with that hood thing or what, whatever mm -hmm. that, that, uh, place of underprivilege is to give us the fuel to tap into that gift and say, you know what, I don't want to be there. And I know it's a long distance from there but it kind of drives us. Um, and I wonder, is this is something that I wonder about all the time is like, I wonder if the third, fourth generation of Vietnamese, are they going to still have that? You know, I just wonder aloud all the time about it. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, and I think like, you know, I've heard like, um, I've definitely seen examples of like, I guess the generation below me, like really tapping into their yeah. culture and their history, really reclaiming it, being proud, wanting to spread it. And I think that's so important. Um, yeah, love it. Yeah, I think, and I think, you know, the work you're doing, like, with this podcast, and I will say, like, I've listened to your podcast and the interviews on here many times when I had felt like I missed my community, didn't feel like I had access to it, you know, starting out in our industry. And it was a safe place for me and a place of comfort just to hear you know like even my parents generation like the artists then and like their struggles to maintain authenticity you know and when it was even harder for them um and so I think it is so yeah really important and I think to continue to kind of preserve and honor our culture and what it means to be a part of at least for us like the diaspora yeah. um yeah but yeah that the groundedness of our shack, our hood, whatever it is, that pain in our past, I think is so essential to what makes us creatives now or any work we do, I think. Um, yeah. And it's so like, it's not that long ago, you know, like my parents are like, uh, I'm one generation away from like, a, yeah, yeah, that very painful legacy. It's crazy. Uncles that lived in pigsties, like literally my mom's uh, cousins that lived in pigsties and we go to Vietnam and they would show us like, the, the the shack that they grew up in and growing up with fecal you know pigs fecal matter like next to them 
and hearing stories like that and being witness to to seeing that and they're like now ceos of different companies in vietnam and you know a lot of them haven't left and they've they because of that gift and knowing how close to sort of like the brink of of really dying and living like that that they've propelled their their lives to to um get mbas and you know travel outside of vietnam to get um leverage to do business in vietnam it's incredible to watch i know it makes me so emotional and so proud like yeah, growing up like we would hang out with my the pigs and my neighbors like the pigs would live in their house like these yeah. giant sows and i would go sleep with them i mean and obviously that's so crazy now the world i live in now but i am so grateful for it because i think it makes me i think it helps me with groundedness and then you know when something comes up in my work like some deal didn't happen or whatever i'm like okay well my mom was drowned in a boat so if she can do that i can certainly take this rejection and <laughs> it doesn't matter yeah what are you up to next um it's interesting. I think the strike, the potential strike puts in a lot of question marks, but I'm just developing my own writing. I think I'll continue to staff, hopefully work for shows or on shows that are really inspiring. Um, and then we'll see. Um, it's the great unknown, I think, of being a freelance creative. And do you want to, are you leaning more on uh, feature or television? Um, I would love to work more in features. I love movies. Um, I think... I think TV has been, I've been really lucky to work in TV, um, but I'm curious, you know, I think the industry now is in a kind of interesting time. I think a time of great change, I think, especially with the streamers, it feels like there's a lot of consolidation. Um, so I'm curious what the landscape will be like, but I, I would love to work in both. Um, and I would love to work more in film because I feel like I've mostly worked in TV my last two years as working as a writer. What about any stories out of Vietnam? anything any future of you know taking your ideas or stories back to vietnam and developing anything there that's the dream i've i've tried to develop like a few projects set there and the things i'm writing for it are always yeah putting vietnamese people at the center i think that's really important to me i have not um uh so far in my career not done a lot i haven't done actual work in vietnam yet um yeah but that would be the dream yeah that's the hope well we're very proud of what you've done here in the u.s uh -huh. yeah <laughs> it's not that much yet you know <laughs> i mean one day I, I could tell you you know almost everybody i know has watched beef and you know mm -hmm. we see it all over social media and we see it within our internal text messages back and forth and we were very proud when you know your name came up in the credits it's just a very emotionally it's a choking you know brings us all to tears so yeah it's crazy i agree not my own name but anytime i see anyone Vietnamese, it's like uh it's a it's something in the soul you know where you're just like yeah no doubt it it has been from the early days in the 90s uh with three seasons do you do you mm -hmm. remember that movie did you ever get to watch it I never got to watch. I need to watch it right now. That's the movie that kicked off this whole thing. Um, done by Tony wow. Bowie, directed by Tony Bowie, and um, his brother Tim Bowie um, produced it. And they kicked off this whole generation of filmmakers that when we all read about that at USC, I had a few friends at USC, I was at USC at the time, and we all just was like, whoa, how is that possible? And then we went to the premiere and then we, some of us started working with the Bowie brothers on the next movie. And they made Green Dragon with uh, Patrick Swayze, Forrest Whitaker. And they just started making these movies. And all of a sudden, all this, like this wave of Vietnamese filmmakers started to pop up. Ham Tran, Stefan Gogger, uh, all these Vietnamese brothers and, you know, and, and, and women and men were just now coming into the 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 film industry in the early 2000s um but seeing their names up on the screen was like the first time my generation we were just all what this is and you know they won like three of the top prizes at sundance yeah. uh, the year that they came out it's just phenomenal oh, cool. to watch. yeah and especially back then i mean 
they paved the way i think the way. you know yeah they paved the way they're legends yeah, yeah. paved the way for for many many who, and nobody could have predicted like because they were rep by cia um in the 90s I know that. yeah they were rep by cia uh wow. just our agent's name craig yeah, we met, hung out a few times, and 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 it, it's like we had no idea the proliferation of Vietnamese people that was gonna show up, and you know, and and I bet you from now to the next ten years, like you, um, Irene Tran Donahue, um, T Ho from uh, Sympathizer, yeah, three of the most recent big writers um, that are staffed and on these big shows. In the next ten years, you guys will be, you know, all doing major major things in the film business as well and inspire another group of um another generation of vietnamese uh young children in in, in the film industry yeah i hope um yeah i hope so i hope it's always uh our work can always make it a little bit easier for the people who come after us you know and, and there's practical implications to all this um i want the grown-ups that are listening to this to know that when we get the representation on screen whether it's acting or writers or whatever it translates into money and i'm not just saying money in the industry but it money for future deals you know people i remember growing up people were just like looked down on vietnamese people in all over asian america you know it was like taiwanese were at the top and <laughs> koreans were at the top and japanese were at the top and it was hard for any vietnamese to kind of like do anything outside of their own business community. But now it's changing and it's yeah. changing because there's visibility and there's representation and we got to push that, con continually push that in the entertainment business. Yeah. I think I, even the past like 10 years that I've been working, I've seen it change so much and I hope it can only continue. Yeah. Yeah. In this direction. I believe it will. It, it is. Yeah, yeah. It is changing. It yeah. is changing. Marie, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank and you. Oh, no, the honor is mine. I'm very grateful that you were willing to talk to me and I feel really lucky to be a part of this podcast and the community you've built. Thank you, Marie. And then hopefully yeah. we'll catch up soon uh, on the next time, um, you know, your, your, uh, another project comes out and <laughs> can't wait to, to see that. Yeah, definitely. We'll have a wonderful time in okay. Ohio and uh, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Vietnamese with Kenneth Wynn. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Wynn, Catherine Wynn, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.